an element of our reducing groups into easier to digest figurines, the stereotyping of people in order to process the ridiculous numbers surrounding us, is to almost unconsciously assume some sort of base stupidity on their part for the choices they make. We assume the 75 million Americans who voted in blocks for Donald Trump are simply too dense to understand how they are voting against their interests. We assume that immigrants flooding the Texas border are simply too dumb to understand that coming to this country without the due process is a crime. We assume that women whose careers intersect with known sexual predators are just too naive to know that a Harvey Weinstein is a gross creep who will likely suggest sexual favors for industry clout. I mean, if they can't see the landmines their choices might step on, they must be as innocent as babes, as ignorant as children, right? These assumptions are at the heart of our frustration with so many people on the right side of the political fence. This infantilization of the other is the core of the belief that children who grew up in poverty and oppression are incapable of doing anything but joining a gang and becoming a career criminal with a vastly reduced lifespan. But let's be straight. Our go-to defense of mass shooters is that they are mentally incapacitated, which is just another way of saying they're too dim-witted to understand the consequences of their choices. Our personal set of justifications is to see radical Christianity as somehow different from radical Islam because only a child would believe if they suicide bomb themselves there will be virgins in the afterlife, but an adult believes in a white Jesus welcoming them in the clouds of heavenly embrace. Not only do we treat those we disagree with as infants and those we see as the other, you know, people living in countries which our version of is completely determined by our own popular culture, we also allow ourselves to become the subject of this process. In many workplaces, managers can now electronically monitor their employees, many of whom work in open spaces with little personal privacy. Colleges now routinely monitor the social media accounts of students, guiding their every step and promoting safe spaces on campus, which is a bit like providing safety helmets for emotional pain. We've witnessed the rise of a therapy culture, which, as sociologist Frank Fioriti warns, treats adults as vulnerable, weak, and fragile, while implying that their troubles rooted in childhood qualify them for a permanent suspension of moral sense. He argues that this absolves grown-ups from adult responsibilities and erodes their trust in their own experiences and insights. Researchers in Russia and Spain have even identified infantilist trends in language, and French sociologist Jacqueline Barus-Michel observes that we now communicate in flashes rather than thoughtful discourse. Quote, poorer, binary, similar to computer language, and aiming to shock. Unquote. Others have noted similar trends in popular culture, in the shorter sentences in contemporary novels, in the lack of sophistication in political rhetoric, and in sensationalist cable news coverage. The specter of Big Brother, of an authoritarian government controlling our every waking moment, is predicated on a population of imbeciles. Combine Huxley with Orwell and you have the Donald Trump, Amazon, Apple, Google society we live in today, and the reality is that we chose this society. We chose to be infantilized and to reduce the other people in the world to the level we've aspired to. Children who are not able to fathom the harshness of living on this planet together.
the only reprieve from the dystopian hell is that tomorrow we can choose differently. We can choose to be adults. We can choose common sense and civility. We can choose to talk out our differences rather than demand to speak to the manager or the police or Congress or Supreme Court or our brand new President Joseph Biden. We can choose to be adults in a world we've created that squeezes us into tiny childlike boxes we prefer to reserve for others. Coming out, man. The facts are starting to come out that the Capitol attack was actually Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters dressed up as Trump supporters. The whole thing was a smear job designed to get Trump impeached again. He was so ginned up that as he forcefully spoke, his mask did that thing, popping forward and down with each P consonant until it was limply hanging under his chin. Now, I don't know. Do I argue with this idiot? Do I even bother to point out the complete bullshit he's spewing? Do I even have the energy to respond to this string of words stitched together with conspiratorial grievance and a pathological need to be the victim in this whole thing? Yeah. So what? Huh? So what? That's what you have to say is so what? Yep. So what? As in... So what about this information you relate has anything to do with me or mine? And so what are you suggesting I do about it? So what? Do? Do? Seems obvious to me. Okay. So what are you going to do about it? You're a sheep, man. Yeah. So what do you suggest be done about it? What's the plan? We have to prosecute them. We have to force a new election that is fair. Okay. Okay. How are we going to do that? So you agree this is a huge problem. Sure. How are we going to deal with this dire circumstance? Fuck, I don't know. Just so much crap, you know. It is definitely a lot of crap. Culture is defined by the shared values among a group of people. These values are represented and supported by shared narratives. In order to be shared values, people within the culture have to find agreement on the fundamentals of the narrative. No agreement, no shared values. The result is a series of competing cultural narratives. The result's a whole room full of people screaming at each other. They're sometimes bizarre, sometimes lunatic, lunatic tribal memes. The issue with social media is that these competing truths spread further and louder and are almost always anti-establishment and contrarian. These narratives get repeated the most often, and our culture becomes one of contention rather than agreement, a battle of ideas rather than a search for common goals. So what? That's your response? So you don't care that the police in this country are uniformly racist and kill black people with no accountability? Okay. So what do you think should be done about it? Wait a minute. You can't believe, you don't believe the cops are racist? Check that white privilege, dude. Okay. White privilege has been checked. So what? So what? So what's the plan? We have to march and organize. People have to know that black people aren't taking this anymore. I'll bet you're one of those assholes who compares BLML, the BLM protests in the summer with the Capitol riot, right? Nope. It's a big difference between looting and burning local stores and taking over a section of a city and participating in an insurrection of the Capitol at the behest of the president. Exactly right. So, 
what, march and protest, maybe loot some targets? That's the plan? No, there's a lot more. Defund the police, for one thing. Cool. So how are we going to do that? Anyway, march, protest, and loot until the powers defund the police? Eventually, they have to listen. Do they? Finding common ground is hard, especially in a time when social media has made it dopamine-friendly to argue about everything and in more vitriolic and alienating terms. I mean, I can post my opinion on the proper method of baking sourdough bread in minutes have someone threaten me with death by a sharp object. Our natural tendency to, be, to want to be right is amplified by the silos of information and misinformation of social media. This is combated by the very simple reality that agreement begets more agreement. In this day and age, the very act of agreement is revolutionary. A random conspiracy theorist, a zealot for an ideology, wants to explain to you their worldview with a sense that you have to listen to them. Their perspective comes from a genuine alarmist focus and a sense of urgency. Problem is, hyperbolic in nature. The fact that you can't see that fact, that this is the issue, this is the one thing that's going to bring out the end of all things good and right, creates a tone of argument before you've said anything in response. So what derails the urgency train? It interrupts the chain of information they are prepared to unleash upon you. Climate change is destroying the planet! So what? Record scratch. Now they have to explain why their issue is so urgent. Agree with them that it is in fact urgent and then follow up again. So what is your solution? Highlighting the problem is emotional. Solving the problem is practical. Forcing the zealot into shifting gears from the emotional to the practical diffuses the talking at you to the talking to you. Now, two things to understand. Common ground has to incorporate dialogue rather than monologue, and few cult members are in practice thinking in terms of feasible, pragmatic solutions, which is why burning it all down seems to be such an easy solution. It doesn't really solve the problem, but it fuels the emotional engine and validates the urgency. Agreement moves things into dialogue, asking questions rather than debate. It likewise moves things into less proselytizing and more pragmatics. Agreeing with lunacy is difficult because most of us would rather be right than actually solve our problems. It's more fun to be right about the complaint than cede authority to a solution. For example, the problem of climate change could be solved by encouraging big oil to make more money investing in clean energy than the current model. Make them the heroes. Provide them incentive to solve the problem. The problem gets solved. But this isn't what most eco-warriors want because they'd rather punish big oil than solve the problem. The question at the end of so what is this? Are you more interested in being right and serving ego or in solving the problem you are so passionate about? Give it a shot. Avoid social media because the very form is an obstacle to meaningful dialogue. It's more work, but if the problems are worth solving, a bit more work might be necessary. We were born in the 1960s. We were the children of the baby boomers who in their youth tried and succeeded on some levels to change the world. Our parents were still a part of the narrative that the American dream was to get married, have a tribe of children, buy property, get a job at a place that promised long-term security. That was the narrative of American adulthood. 
as they grow older or grew older, the baby boomers, by and large, adopted that narrative out of nothing more than entropy. It was just easier to go along with the mantra of grown-up life and the assertion that anything other than marriage, kids, house, job was arrested development. Grow up, the collective consciousness told them, and so most of them did. We were their children, and unlike any other generation before or since, we were split as how to address this idea of adulthood. John went to college, married youngish, got a job with a company that looked like a lifelong prospect, had a couple of pups, bought a house in an affordable and upwardly mobile neighborhood in a city with a bit of room to grow. He was, by all indications, a productive adult member of the American sh machine. Jack went to college, got married or not, had no kids, got a divorce or not, had multiple careers along his path, rented his places of residence, and generally exhibited all the signs of someone who refused to buy into the grown-up demands he was and is considered to be not acting his age. Generation X was presented with a choice, and about half chose the conventional wisdom of adulthood, and the other half did not. Once in a while, this disparity of choices hits me in the face like a wet swatch of canvas. I look at the profile pictures of men and women I was in high school with. Some of them look old. Some of them look young. We're all exactly the same age. If I delve deeper, the ones who look old are the ones who have children the age of women I've dated. They have mortgages. They have life insurance. They have yards and all the issues faced by the adult in America. The ones who look young are less encumbered with this notion of responsible iconography. I think it must be like being the president, right? I mean, take a look at the age four years of running the country does to these cats. The hair gets white, the, white, the face gets older, the shoulders start to bend down. Now, granted, we've only had really fucking old dudes the last couple rounds, so maybe that's just them. But the, there are multiple prices to be paid for creating and accepting a lot of responsibility for the well-being of others and the paying of debts and the safety of your particular backyard. My theory is that stress, stress ages us. My theory is that those of us who choose to eschew the traditional lifestyle have chosen what some may qualify as a carefree life. I'd argue that we of the arrested development certainly have cares and worries, but that more often than not, our cares and worries extend mostly to ourselves than to the well-being of those we are responsible for. Further, I'd suggest that those of us who have chosen to ignore the narrative of conventional grown-up choices are generally more expressive of our inner monologue. Artists, poets, musicians, dancers. We find ways to funnel that ugly inner voice and get it out there in the open. I need to clarify that I don't disparage anyone of my generation who chose to go the route of conforming to the model of the family, home, and security. I mean, you gotta do what you're called to do, but Gen X is the first generation to be taught to fear sex. We watched our older siblings embrace the free love attitudes of the 70s, and just as we entered high school, the panic over unprotected sex suddenly became a daily mantra. Suddenly, everything we associated with pleasure, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, playing in the street unattended, and sex became things to avoid out of fear of death or stigma, with stigma really being the worst of the two. 
If one remembers the book of the 1990s, Generations, by William Strauss, you might recall that the central idea was that generations come in pairs. The lost generation was there to guide the greatest generation. The silent generation was around to help inform the baby boomers. Gen X is a, we're supposed to be the wise elders assisting the millennials. On this theory, I'm thinking my generation has done a piss-poor job of offering a helping hand to our younger cohorts. I think we sent the wrong messages, and our parenting skills were for shit. We learned in some ways to ignore the fear of society, but those Xers who laid claim to the American dream as it was writ large instead learned to embrace it, and they were the ones who had kids. Perhaps those of us on the not-acting-our-age crowd simply decided to ignore that fear. Ignore the panic. Perhaps that's what is truly a carefree life. Perhaps that's what makes us careless as well. Not so sure about that one. But I wish more of us carefree Gen Xers had had kids. Not me, but someone else. I managed to avoid watching or listening to a single speech by Donald J. Trump in all four years of his presidency. I never watched George W. Bush give a speech, but clamored to hear every word spoken by Barack Obama. And on the morning of January 20th, 2021, I finally watched Trump give his farewell speech as the plane was set to dispatch he and his family of creatures off to Florida, which is really the only place I can think of them fitting with this cadre of septuagenarians and shirtless idiots. The speech was exactly as I thought it would be. And the question I wondered is, did we learn anything from him, or at least from the now very real possibility of him? It turns out that 74% of the online conflicts on Reddit were instigated by 1% of the users. Out of 900,000 active police officers employed in the United States, roughly 1,000 are involved in situations that result in the death of civilians. Now, that's 0.1% of police who use their authority and kill others. 1% of the population of the country is responsible for 63% of all violent crime. A new paper suggests that between 5% and 20% of people account for most overt acts of racism. 25 and 20%, between 5 and 20% account for most overt acts of racism. Now, reframing it for a moment, and it looks like the vast majority of people are not, in fact, engaged in conflict, violence, and overt racism in the country. At one point, as the bar and slots manager in the casino, I noticed a policy that our servers could comp out almost every drink and liquor imaginable except for Red Bull. No matter how high a level the guest, Red Bull was off the menu unless they paid for it. Now, I never really thought too much about it, but one afternoon I asked the swing shift bartender why we made that exception. Oh, she said, we had a manager a few years ago who was comping Red Bulls out for himself every day. The GM just decided to eliminate Red Bulls altogether after that punish everyone for the grift of one guy. It's a little short-sighted. Yeah, but what are you going to do? And she shrugged. I put the Red Bull back on the comp list. That's what I did. The, the, the problem of one asshole who abused the system should not punish everybody involved. Trump was one dude. One toxic, 
broken men with a big mouth, a pathological need to trumpet himself out of sheer low self-esteem, and the money given to him from his far more ruthless and intelligent mega-racist father. For a host of reasons, and some obviously antisocial and representing the worst among us, but some logical and perhaps reactionary, 75 million Americans voted for him to continue his reign of incompetence for another four years. Most of that number are not wear a Viking helmet shirtless assholes. Most are your neighbors. Now, there are a lot of assholes out there, but a lot more who are not assholes. You know what an asshole is? He's been our president for four years. An asshole shuts you down, makes up facts, calls people demeaning names, lacks specifics, is more concerned with ego than cooperation, requires loyalty, and does everything in his power to cancel others who disagree with him. The best thing I can imagine anyone doing in the wake of Trump leaving the Oval Office is to simply not behave in any way like him. He used social media as a weapon. Don't do that. He positioned his every argument as an emotional hot button. Don't do that. He was often irrational and unapologetic. Don't be irrational and try to display some level of humility. Uh, according to my former staff at the casino, I am an excellent manager. Now, as much as I'd love to embrace that as somehow my natural inclinations and abilities, I can't. I've learned from some extraordinary bosses over my many avenues to income, from Sharon Hayes, who was my first high school or my first school principal, to Daniel Ash, who was my boss at WBEZ, to Jeffrey Smith, the general manager at the casino. I've also learned from a few terrible managers. And in some ways, those lessons were even more valuable than the positive examples. I believe that each of us is a sum total of the many people we encounter. I am parts of my grandfather, my mom, my wife. I am also parts of my domestic abusing first stepfather, the bullies I met in high school, and the manager who went out of her way to take credit for my work while complaining that I was incompetent. Now, like the above statistics, the vast plural plurality of human people in my life, summed up as they are in synthesis in my character, have been non-assholes. Most have been decent human beings doing the best they can with a loaded deck and fewer chips than they would like at the felt. So what do we learn from four years of the Orange Goblin? Well, the worst of us will be exactly like him. The best of us will do our damnedest to be as far from like him as humanly possible. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts.